welcome to episode three of Inside Your Head, the podcast and blog that explores psychology, mental health, neuroscience, self-help and related subjects. Here's a short clip from today's main interview. And I think it's because we fail to understand that our brain is just another part of our body that is made up from our DNA. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It's not a magical thing. <laughs> it is just part of who you are. So if you can accept that things are passed through your DNA for how you're going to look, then we should be able to accept that things are going to be passed down through your DNA and how we think. The person you heard talking there was Samantha Stockin. Samantha very kindly agreed to come onto the programme to talk about her own lived experience, as well as to talk about a remarkable role that she and other people play in the organisation she works for. And you'll hear more about that in the main interview coming up shortly. Anyway, I wanted to kick off today's programme uh, talking about something that many people find difficult not just to understand but to apply particularly to themselves and that subject is self-compassion and the reason that I want to talk about that today is because it's one of the main things that has helped me to overcome the breakdown that I had in January of this year, 2021. What I realised was that actually I was <laughs> not at all good at self-compassion. Um, and in fact, I pretty much have to admit that I loathed myself. And to demonstrate what I mean by this, there's I'm going to be talking about a book called Self-Compassion, Stop Beating Yourself Up and Leave Insecurity Behind by a wonderful woman called Kristin Neff, PhD. And she's famous for giving TED Talks and you can find her online. That's Kristin Neff, N-E-F-F-P-H-D. And this particular book, uh, it wouldn't be going too far, in fact, to say that it was probably one of the key things that saved my life, that basically prevented me from committing suicide not so very long ago. This is powerful stuff. This is not uh, light-hearted stuff. This is stuff that I truly think could potentially help lots of you out there if you're not already familiar with the concept of self-compassion. And uh, I'm going to talk about this book in a certain amount of depth, but not necessarily breadth, because the book itself is really quite long. It's uh, nearly 300 pages long, something like that. Um, and it's absolutely science-based. Even though it talks about things like mindfulness and so on and so forth, you can rest assured that Kristen Neff is very much a scientist. She's very much applying principles in the book that are based on proper psychology, psychiatry and neuroscience and not at all uh, woo-woo stuff as I sometimes call it. Um, that's why I recommend the book with no hesitation whatsoever. But I want to kind of take you a little bit I'm not you know I'm, I'm going to be circumspect in how much I reveal obviously because a lot of it's very personal but just give you a brief overview of where I was not so very long ago now if you've been to the inside your head website 
and you've seen my welcome page, I give a kind of overview of what my story has been over the last couple of years, where I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and was immediately put on some medication called Prostap 3, which affected my moods terribly. Uh, basically brought an awful lot of stuff bubbling to the surface, took away all the testosterone in my body, effectively made me a menopausal uh, middle-aged man. You know, my my wife was delighted she kind of understood because she is herself menopausal. But uh, not to make light of it, it affected my mood and my ability to cope with emotions very, very severely. And um, again, just the barest pricey, I had a kind of falling out with my closest friend, a lovely woman who had tried to help me overcome some of my emotional problems. And uh, she was in a very difficult place herself. And some of the stuff that was bubbling up from my past was pretty much overwhelming. It was very, very painful for me. And Obviously, uh, she was suffering seeing me in so much pain. And also, uh, I realised and confessed to her that I had um, become infatuated with her, um, at, much to my own surprise. And at that point, she said, well, I think we'd better put some distance between us um, for the time being. And that's what triggered my breakdown I suffered all kinds of uh, very severe uh, anxiety, abandonment issues, uh, sense of rejection, and all my self-loathing came bubbling to the surface. Um, and I considered killing myself. There's no two ways about it. Uh, there's actually uh, a really, really powerful passage that I'm going to read you from the book from page uh, 34 of the book actually uh, that kind of sums up where I was um, at that time uh, and one of the things that comes across from the book that's actually reassuring is that many of the things that we feel that we are we have a sense that gosh no one else can be suffering quite like I'm suffering. Uh, basically, I must be having the worst experience of anyone in the world at this moment. But in fact, many of the things that we endure are part of what is common humanity. And many of us have these kind of feelings. And in fact, it's quite shocking how many of us have these feelings. And you may recognise some of these feelings yourself. So be prepared, folks. This is powerful stuff today. This is I'm not messing around. This is uh, really important stuff as far as I'm concerned. Um, in the book, Kristin F talks about, you know, how bad can it get when our feelings of self-judgment basically take over our lives, when basically we, we find ourselves in a situation for which we blame ourselves entirely. Um, and... Uh, as she says on uh, page 33, she says, sadly, the damage caused by self-judgment can get much, much worse. Feelings of inadequacy and inferiority are associated with acts of self-harm, like drug and alcohol abuse, reckless driving on purpose and cutting. Uh, 
which are really attempts to externalise and release emotional pain. In extreme cases, when self-criticism goes unchecked for years, when ruthless self-pummeling becomes a way of life, some choose to escape the pain by escaping life itself. A large number of uh, large-scale studies have found that extreme self-critics are much more likely to attempt suicide than others. Feelings of shame and insignificance can lead to a devaluing of oneself to the extent that it even overpowers our most basic and fundamental instinct, the will to stay alive. Uh, and one of the things that became clear to me in this process that I had basically loathed myself for probably close on 50 years, ever since my father had died. My father died when I was 10 years old and left me with issues that I'd never properly addressed. Uh, the one thing that uh, did become a thread that I eventually recognised was that I hated myself. I despised myself for years and years and years, and I spoke to myself in the most contemptuous manner possible whenever I felt like I'd done something wrong. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but... Uh, the other thing that arose from this was that I felt, a, even though I had a loving partner and I had other good friends, uh, one good friend in particular, and I felt atrociously lonely, incredibly lonely, a sense of even though I was amongst people, I felt solitude and loneliness. And uh, another quote from the book for, uh, that uh, Kristen Neff's actually taken from someone's blog. I'm so lonely sometimes that it seems like I'd be better off dead. I think about dying because I'm just so worthless and no one loves me. I don't love me. Being all the way dead has to be better than feeling dead inside. That's really powerful stuff. And I have to tell you, that really resonated with me. I got this book probably just a couple of weeks after I'd hit my darkest point and thought about ending everything. And this book really helped to turn me around. One of the things that you find in the book is it links to a website where you can go and take a test to find out how much self-compassion you feel for yourself. Uh, and when I took the test, I discovered my results were absolutely, well, I'd have to say dismal. Uh, I can't tell you how shockingly poor my scores were. I'm actually flicking through the book at the moment here. Let's, let's take a look at uh, the, what I scored on the 30th, it says the 13th of February, 2021. So, uh, some of the, the scores are out of five. Sometimes it's obvious that a low score is good. Sometimes it's obvious that a high score is good. But here we are. This, and this is just truth. This is the raw, honest truth about how I felt about myself back in February of 2021. Uh, my score for self-kindness was one out of five. My score for self-judgment was five out of five. And that's a bad high score. Uh, my sense of common humanity was only 1.5. My sense of isolation was 4.25. My score for mindfulness was 2.25. Modest, let's say. My sense of over-identification with my problems uh, was 4.25. Pretty lousy. Giving me an overall score out of 5 of 
1.54. Dismal, I think you'll agree. Now, let me tell you that uh, one of the reasons I'm still here talking to you is that I put in the work and I've turned my life around um, in an awful lot of ways. And I retook the test last week on the 4th, uh, sorry, on the 9th of uh, August. And um, things are rather better. Uh, my uh, self-kindness score is now 4.8 out of 5. My self-judgment has gone down to 2 out of 5. My sense of common humanity has gone up to 3 out of 5. Could still work on that. My sense of isolation has gone down to 2.25. Again, some work to do there. My mindfulness score, I'm delighted to say, is up at 4.75. And my sense of over-identification with problems has gone down to 2 out of 5. So my overall score now is 4.05 out of 5. And in their categorization, they say a score of above 3 means that uh, you're in the pretty good high category for self-kindness and self-compassion. So that's what you can do if you turn things around. So uh, the point is this, that when we feel uh, criticized, criticized by someone else uh, or something goes wrong in our life, uh, what we tend to do and you may be nodding at this, is we tear ourselves to shreds. Instead of brushing it off, ignoring it, or even better, giving ourselves some compassion, what we tend to do is tear ourselves to pieces. Um, and one of the things that I realised that I did, and I now realise it's a very common thing, is I would get in my own savage criticism first before anyone else could get in any criticism. So whatever any, anyone else said about me, well, what I'd said to myself was already far, far worse than an outsider would ever say. And when I say that I would attack myself savagely, I mean using the kind of language and expletives that you would hesitate to use towards your worst enemy. Uh, you would hesitate to use in the worst rows you've ever had with a family member or with a husband or wife or partner. The kind of language that um, basically is a form of self-destruction. There's no other way of putting it. Where something really quite simple could happen, like I'd accidentally spill a cup of tea. That could trigger an absolute tirade of self-loathing to the point where, you know, my dear partner Anne would, you know, look at me and, goodness me, you've only spilled a cup of tea. What's the matter? But, of course, this is symptomatic of something that's much, much deeper inside us that we have stored up for all kinds of reasons uh, a, a sense of self-criticism, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of insecurity about ourselves that kind of manifests itself as I've always called it the devil on my shoulder. 
you know, some people in a sense of depression, they talk about a black dog. Well, in terms of self-loathing and lack of self-compassion, I have always talked about the devil on my shoulder that whenever anything happened, whenever I had any sense that I was a bit inadequate about anything or anything less than perfect, basically, this went alongside a massive sense of you know drive for perfection. Whenever I set myself impossible targets and then, surprise, surprise, failed to meet those impossible targets, the devil would appear on my shoulder and give me an absolute dressing down. A total, um, like you might see in the movies, you know, an army sergeant major deliberately trying to break the soldiers under their command. You know, to to tell them that they're complete tow rags, that they're completely useless, and they belong to the army. They have, you know, you know they are worthless. Uh, the difference is that an army sergeant major, you know, even though that's frowned upon now, would have the idea of they're do they're breaking them down to then build them up again. You know, into the kind of person who can make a fantastic soldier. Whereas when you loathe yourself, you're just breaking yourself down. You're just tormenting yourself for no good purpose so what i realized is you know that that when we do this essentially we're kind of looking to be rescued we're looking for validation from outside ourselves and the trouble is we we can't do that it's not other people's responsibility to look after us even our best friend and this is what happened to me even my best friend you know it reached a point where bless her heart she couldn't solve my problems the only person who could solve my problems was me and the only way I could solve my problems was to stop loathing myself to stop hating myself and learn to love myself now not so long ago as I said I would have gone oh poo poo that sounds like shilly shally rubbish you can't won't get me involved in that kind of thing but hey actually the best person to look after us is ourself and so learning self-compassion essentially what that means is just learning to be your own best friend to learn to talk to yourself and have a voice inside your head that is the voice that you a, a really really good compassionate friend would have and in the same way as we would show compassion to anyone else we saw suffering you know if we if we bumped into someone in the street who was in tears and having a really bad time we wouldn't stand there shouting at them and saying well you brought it all on yourself you you're just complete rubbish you know well you deserve this no we'd go up to them we'd put a hand on their shoulder and say oh there there you know what's going on you know let, do you want to talk about this uh calm down you know should i get you a cup of tea you know, that's how we would talk to a complete stranger. And of course, if it was a really good friend of ours, we'd be even more compassionate. And, you know, I know you well. This isn't this isn't normal for you. Yes, I understand that this is a difficult time. This is hard for you. And that's what we have to do for ourselves. And that's what I've learned to do for myself. So when I feel bad about something now, instead of beating myself up putting on the boxing gloves and beating myself up I give myself a good talking to I talk to myself out loud sometimes folks as if I was my own best friend I put myself 
outside myself and look in at the situation and talk to myself, you know, come on, Henry, they're there. What is it? Yes, I understand that this is painful, you know, but we can acknowledge the pain, but we don't have to turn it into suffering. You know, there's a big difference. We can show ourselves compassion. We can be kind to ourselves. And to going through the process here on this program now, it's just, you know, there, there isn't the time and the space to do it because I could talk for hours just about the overcoming the self-loathing side of thing and the neuroscience that goes into it and how things like mindfulness and meditation can be enormously helpful and they absolutely can and that's part of the healing program as recommended in Kristin Neff's I think remarkable book Self-Compassion. So if you've recognized anything in yourself of what I've just been talking about, if you recognise your tendency to beat yourself up for the tiniest things, if you recognise that you can go from like zero to a hundred in self-loathing in a matter of moments, well, that's a sign that you need to do something about that. And the sooner you do something about that, the better. And all I can say is, trust me, self-compassion does work. Self-compassion is the reason why I am still here talking to you today. Self-compassion is, has not only made me like myself a great deal more, as the scores from that test show. Frankly, it's made me a better person. It's made me understand other people better it's made me more able to show compassion to the people i love and care about because it's a bit like that message on aircraft put on your own oxygen mask first if you are flailing around gasping for emotional oxygen you're not capable of giving the best of yourself to the people around you so when you learn self-compassion and you learn to care for yourself first, this isn't selfishness. Actually, it's the opposite of selfishness. I think particularly as a British person, it's, oh, give it a rub, you'll be fine. Oh, gosh, emotions. No, 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 stick that emotion away in a cupboard. Don't acknowledge it. Cover it up. You know, goodness me, don't show any weakness. That's all rubbish. You're allowed to acknowledge the pain. You have to acknowledge the pain you're going through. See the pain, but then be able to separate yourself from the pain by giving yourself great big dollops of self-compassion. And when you do that and you are able to heal yourself, it's not to say you reject, you know, if you've got other friends and loved ones around you who want to offer their compassion as well. Well, that's wonderful. You're extremely lucky. But you don't have to rely on that. And that's what I learned. I realised that I had been far too dependent on validation and compassion and love from other people, which, of course, put a burden on them. They were having to try and solve my own insecurities about me that I had buried deep inside me. 
Whereas now I am perfectly capable of being my own fire brigade, as it were, emotionally. I'm perfectly capable of being the one who, you know, puts out the worst of the fire. And then if my loved ones come along and, you know, add some more soothing balm to that, that's wonderful. But it's not their responsibility to fix me. It's my responsibility to fix me. And what I've realised is by being able to fix myself much more effectively, I can recognise and understand other people's problems and show more compassion to them, not less. And so it's a win-win situation. So um, that's all I'm going to say in this programme because I could talk till the cows come home about this subject. It's a vast subject. But I hope that's just given you an insight into the value of self-compassion. That if you recognise some of those symptoms I've described in yourself of, you know, self-loathing, beating yourself up, you need to learn self-compassion. And the value of self-compassion goes far beyond just looking after yourself. It enables you, it frees you to be able to look after the other people in your life that you love as well. And I'm just going to, I'm obviously going to put the... Uh, the link to the book in the show notes but i'll just say again it's written by Kristin neff phd you can google her there's loads of stuff comes up she's on amazon all over the place and the name of the book is self-compassion stop beating yourself up and leave insecurity behind thanks for listening to that we're now going to go to the main interview with samantha stocking everyone and welcome to the main part of the show of Inside Your Head episode three and today I'm delighted to be joined by uh, a special guest Samantha Stockin who has agreed to come on and talk about her own personal experiences when it comes to mental health which is I'm sure you'll agree very brave of her and so I'm very very grateful to her that she's prepared to do this. Uh, Samantha is an IT manager she's very familiar with uh, technical aspects of computer and the internet, which is very useful when you're putting together a podcast like this and in case anything goes wrong. Anyway, Samantha, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Hi, Henry. Thanks for having me. That's great that you've come on. I'm, I'm really grateful that you have because obviously uh, it takes a bit of guts to be prepared to kind of talk about your own lived experience you know when it comes to do with these things and it's all very well you know having experts come on who uh you know do stuff for a living but it's something else when someone's prepared to come on and talk about their own experiences and i know uh judging from the show notes we drew up beforehand that this is going to be a really interesting conversation covering quite a few things so i think before we get started samantha could you just give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself you know where you're from and kind of what you do for a living yep so i was born in uh royal leamington spa in warwickshire at a hospital that's now been torn down 
which you know make of that what you will <laughs> um uh so uh i was born in the late 70s uh winter of discontent that kind of period right. so I grew up through the um uh sort of 80s uh thatcher era of um yeah. Uh, it was difficult in in as much as um, it was difficult for everybody at that time. I was a very I'm a very working class background. My dad's a yeah. lorry driver by trade. My mum was a um, a nurse in an old people's home, mm-hmm. um, and my dad's a union man. So right. I was very much up with that kind of mindset um, that politics was important, that other people were important, that you have a yeah. social responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and then my parents bought a shop when I was. Seven. It was very oh, yeah. open all hours kind of establishment. So oh, really? Newspaper, news agents in general store. We had um, a local bakery that brought us bread. We sold that, cream cakes, um, off license. I mean, it was one of those old fashioned shops that sold. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so, all through my formative years, seven to 14, we ran that. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, during that time, my mum's health deteriorated quite significantly, physical health. So, I became a carer really during that period and, and basically right. I started work at seven because when your parents own a shop and it's attached to your house you work <laughs> in the shop right yeah uh, of so I would work in it before school so that mum could have a wee and then I would work <laughs> a shift after school I'd get my um wages every week in a little brown envelope a little wow. two pounds yeah. um so yeah it was, a, it was a different childhood because of that anyway and then uh, then my parents moved to Western Supermarket um they always wanted to live by the sea so that was 14 so that was right in the middle of my GCSEs quite a wrench as you can imagine uh lived there for a few years went off to University of the West of England to do economics and politics had to pull out of that um because at that point I was working full-time and trying to do uni full-time and it just didn't mix yeah too much so then I went into, I was working at Tesco. I mean, the minute I hit 16, I got a job at Tesco. Uh, <laughs> worked at Tesco for a number of years, made my way up yeah. to section manager, then real, realised retail was a lot of hours, but not very good money. Yes, absolutely. And then I walked out in and out of various jobs. I've done lots of different jobs in my time. I've yeah. been, uh, I've run a petrol station. I have wow. written CVs professionally. I've been an office manager. I've been in the police force. I, and then I fell into a temporary job at a bank, uh, working in head office as a PA, just as a stopgap. And I've been there yeah. ever since. And it's wow. the longest company I've worked for, which is a good reflection on them. Fantastic. <laughs> Wow, that's a brilliant CV, Samantha. Absolutely amazing. Of course, I want to kind of wind back and, you know, when you were running the shop, of course, I want to know, did you sell four candles? Uh, but that's well, a, we a, did. <laughs> ah, four candles, yeah. Re- that's a reference to the jokes. two Ronnies people, but aficionados of the two Ronnies comedy series from uh, quite a few years ago now, wasn't it? It was a, a famous sketch and... Yeah, the famous yep. four candle sketch. But anyway, I digress. That's got nothing to do with what you're here to talk about. But thanks very much, Adi, for uh, priming that pump for me to use that line, which I've been wanting to use for years. But anyway, um, that's a really fascinating and varied CV that you've got there, Samantha. That's an extraordinary mixture of stuff. I mean, I thought I had a varied uh, career in inverted commas, but I think you've you've trumped me. That's that's brilliant. But obviously today you're you've you've kindly agreed to come on the show to talk about the stuff which 
you know, there's no other way of putting it, is has not been so much fun in your life. In the hope that, of course, talking about your own lived experience might resonate with some of the listeners out there who may, you know, hearing you think, oh, that sounds a bit like, you know, how I'm feeling at the moment, the kind of experience I'm having. Maybe if they're, you know, they might not have recognised what they're going through and, and the hope is of course that by listening to you and what you've got to say about your experience that they will at the very least maybe go on wikipedia and look up a few things to discover some stuff or even better of course reach out if necessary maybe to their own general practitioner locally or you know other professional help if that's what's required so this is great that you've agreed to do this, Samantha. So now, one of the th things that you, you mentioned to me in the lead up to the show uh, is uh, something that I think uh, not many people know very much about. And so I'm going to leave you to kind of explain it to you. You, you explained to me that you've suffered from what's called, oh, it's got several names I've discovered. It's generational trauma, also known as transgenerational or intergenerational trauma so i think as a starting point because i i confess i'd not heard of this before you mentioned it so for the benefit of the listeners could you basically explain what this is and how it's affected you yeah so it's a topic that um became of interest to me because um through my own mental health um, issues, which I'll talk about a bit later on, I started to question uh, why it was that I was the way I was. And I'm right. a very scientific, logical person. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have an awful childhood. Yeah. I didn't have any particular nasty trauma. I didn't have it easy, but I, had, I didn't have any trigger things mm. that happened to me as a child. And my, my mental health condition has really been around forever. And I'll talk right. a little bit about that later. Um, sure. So I started wondering why. Um, and my brother as well um, comes with a set of challenges of his own, mm. different to mine. And, and he had a more difficult start to life, but still not anything major, you know, normal mm. stuff. And I looked around my mum's family and my dad's family and saw instances of, of mental health issues or... Mm what I would now recognise as mental health issues, but I would probably then have said just criminal behaviour or bad behaviour or unexplained right. behaviour. And I started thinking, how has that happened? Mm. How is that permeating through our family? Mm. What has caused that? And I happened to catch a documentary, and I cannot even remember what the documentary was called, but it was about generational trauma. And it was mm. some research that had been done on a village, I believe in Northern Europe, and it was to do with their capacity for um, retaining weight. Oh, yeah. And so children that were born of those people who had lived through famine were more likely to retain weight and find it difficult to lose weight. Yeah. Whereas those who had been conceived during periods of abundance yeah. found it easier to lose weight and could control everything and it mm. and it was tracked back because via the dna it there was memory in the dna so those people yeah. that were conceived in times of no food their bodies were hardwired to store 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 right okay and they then tried they then looked further and said there's more than that though those people that were born 
uh, to those in times of, of need and want psychologically mm. were always on the lookout for food found it very difficult to resist food had a right. very and it was psychologically different and this led to the documentary going into um transgenerational trauma mm. of where you are inheriting trauma through your dna from what's happened to generations before you wow and within my family on my mom's side my mom is um ukrainian ethiopian right. so her father was is was ukrainian bless him he's dead now he left ukraine during the second world war running from his farm as nazis came across the land in one direction and russians wow. came across the land in the other direction trap between and on them. Her, mm. yeah trap between them his brother was shot and he dragged his dead brother's body for a mile before he realized so wow. there's trauma immediately there and then on yeah. her mother's side her mother and my my great grandmother uh, Mimi, who I had the great pleasure of knowing, you know, mm. um, were in concentration camps. Oh, they, um, Mimi was a member of the uh, Lithuanian resistance. Mm. Uh, she told my mum stories of killing people with her bare hands oh, and ending up in a concentration camp. Mm. And you just think that the trauma that they lived through and then, mm. um, so my mum's mum uh, and my grandfather got together my mom's mom was only maybe 17. She didn't really understand relationships. She's broken herself through everything she's been through. Mm. And then my grandfather, because he knew no better and there's no judgment here, forced mm. himself on her to get her pregnant. Wow. It is a different generation. It's a different world. Yeah, he didn't yeah. force on her in, in some cruel ownership way, but just in a, she didn't know what she was doing. But that's traumatic. So my yeah. mum was even conceived in trauma. Wow. And then my mum's life has been one nightmare after another, and that's her story to tell. So we won't go into mm. too much detail, but she lost sure. her, her full, only full sister at a very young age due to a fire. She has a number of siblings who were by different fathers. Mm. Um, and she, she was sexually, physically, and psychologically abused all through her childhood. Mm. And so... When she had children, my brother and myself, she wanted to not pass that on. It was yeah. very important to her that the life she gave, my brother and me, was not what she had yeah. experienced. So there was yeah. no passing of that on to us. There was no, that's what my mother did to me, so that's what I'm going to do to you. That yeah, was yeah. not part of it. And yet, I was born with this instinctive need to look after everybody, make sure everything's right, make sure nothing's broken, be responsible for everybody. It's all my fault. Mm, people my brother pleasing. was born with, mm. clearly now we understand, he's on the autism spectrum quite mm. a way. And he also is very, finds it very difficult to trust anybody. And, and he's, he's got a whole other set of challenges around him. Mm. And it's just interesting to know for everything my mom did to give it. And it was a very loving, she's a lovely lady. And mm. yes, okay, she whacked us with a wooden spoon when we were a pain in the ass. <laughs> was the 80s, right? We yeah. were thwacked. That was it. It was over. She still, she feels bad about it now. I'm sat there going, we yeah. knew what we were doing, mum. We knew we could have stopped at any point. Yeah. But there was none of what she went through. And yet we seem to carry mm. something with us mm. that comes via her 
or my father his his background um less traumatic in many ways but still issues there around his father was exceedingly old when he had him so my grandfather on that side actually worked on building the empire state building but that's a whole other story Uh, but he was never around he was one of those men that would come home get his wife pregnant and then disappear yeah yeah you know and there was trauma on on his side as well um less extreme but you think it gets brought together and and that damage and i think about a whole generation of people who were born after the war whether they were from immigrants like I am or whether mm. they were from the men that were in the trenches or the women that were at home trying to keep the country running, mm. you don't get away with that scot-free. Mm. And there was no counselling for these people. No, <laughs> just absolutely. sucked it up. So yeah. it's going to go somewhere. You don't get away yeah. with it scot-free. And that's, I think, where this generational trauma comes from, that... Mm for all the good stuff that you can do to try to project your children from whatever it is that happened to you, don't forget that there's aspects of it you don't have control over. That's nobody's Mm. fault, but Mm. be prepared that they may need help through something that you weren't expecting. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, this is fascinating stuff. Um, And you're a highly intelligent woman, and I know that you are someone who likes your science and likes your your fact-based uh evidential-based stuff um so obviously uh, some people listening might go well that sounds a bit far-fetched i mean what so to what extent have you been able to yourself investigate what the science behind this might be you know it sounds to me as if there's a combination of things going on here there's neuroscience there's uh, neurobiology, if you like, where you're saying that t- uh, to a certain extent, trauma of this kind can potentially actually become uh, kind of embedded in the D- in DNA, essentially, handed down from generation to generation. Um, and certainly, you know, as soon as you start describing what we all recognize are horrific episodes of world history like world war ii on the eastern front and the experience of your forebears uh you know in uh, ukraine belarus and places like that trapped between stalin's uh, red army and the nazi army that is not something that of course is easily dismissed so tell us something about your thinking about this you know because you obviously suspect at the very least that this has had an effect on you and members of your family in a way that's not can't be just explained by well my parents were abusive towards me because clearly they weren't so tell us some more about that samantha so i think yeah it can be really easy to sort of dismiss these things and and kind of say well that sounds a bit far-fetched but but the evidence of of what we pass down by the generations is 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 in front of us all the time we absolutely accept that if you've got parents with brown eyes you're gonna have brown eyes we absolutely accept that if there is the ginger gene in your family you may get a lovely redhead you know and we also accept things like it'll skip a generation and we all have old wives tales that we lean back on you know there's twins in our family and it'll always skip a generation or you know whatever it might be yet we find it difficult to accept that that would 
persist in something that forms our brain. And I think it's mm. because we fail to understand that our brain is just another part of our body that is mm. made up from our DNA. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It's not a magical thing. And it, it is yeah. just part of who you are. So if you can accept that things are passed through your DNA for how you're going to look, yeah. then we should be able to accept that things are going to be passed down through your DNA and how we think. Yeah. And we also accept it for intelligence. I'm always very surprised if two intelligent people have this, what we class as a stupid child, you know? <laughs> uh, but And yet, it's all part of the stigma around mental health, I think. It's all lumped in together. We haven't had the conversations early enough. We are, we are having evolutionary conversations about psychology now, way down the line from when we had evolutionary conversations about the evolution of us as human beings and how yeah. genes work. Yeah. That's okay. Accept that. Move on. But just because something sounds hooky to you, don't dismiss it. Look yeah. it up. There's yeah. loads of research out there. And it doesn't dismiss nurture. It's not yeah. about that either. It's yeah. about saying that there's obviously going to be a combination. There are things that are going to have been done by my mother to me mm. based on her experiences. Mm. So, of course, nurture oh. is involved. Yeah, absolutely. But if you're already then on a basis of something being slightly wonky, then that's going to make it potentially worse or better, depending yeah. on how your brain has set up. Yeah. But then I look further, and for our family, I've got a lovely daughter who has ADHD, acute anxiety syndrome, and, uh, and uh, autism, and anosmia of all things, which for those who don't know means she has no sense of smell, congenital anosmia since birth, wow. no sense of smell. Apparently she's working through all the A's in the medical dictionary. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> she's building them up. But she's got so ADHD and autism and, and OCD, just so you know, are all actually affected by the same part of the brain. Yeah. But she's got ADHD and autism. My brother's eldest is also autistic. Wow. Where has that come from? Yeah. DNA. So yeah. it, it all links and it's important for us to know. So it's important for you to know as a parent um, as well, because mm. both myself and my brother have gone through that. It's our fault. Our child mm. has got this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did something wrong. Uh, yeah. You need to be able to work through that. So it's helpful to accept it. Mm. Um, but I think from from our perspective, from, from my perspective more than my brother's, because he's, if you met him... <laughs> I love him to bits, but he's very much on the right-wing side of the world, okay. the left-wing side of the world. Yeah, so yeah. my dad was a union man, and my brother was a Thatcherite, so it was right. a great household. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. he struggles with this concept because he believes in, in you know, more libertarian, you know, it's about what you do. And yet, when I talk to him about how his brain functions, mm. he's like, I don't know why I think like this, Samantha. I don't... Mm. And trying to get him to accept that sometimes... You are given your doubt a hand of cards, mm. and sometimes you have to just deal with what what that has been given to you. What what have yeah. you been dealt? How are you going to cope with it? You can't do anything to change it. Yeah. Um. So for us in our family, it seems to be extending quite quite away. Um. Mm. But knowing about it and understanding it is exactly the same as me knowing why it is I have a propensity to put weight on my bum. You know, it comes yeah. through the DNA. Yeah, my mum's yeah. got a big bum. Her mum's got a big bum. My great grandma yeah. had a big bum. Even yeah. when they didn't have any food, they all had big bums. Yeah, it, it's exactly the same in my head now. That mm. that's just what it is. 
So mm. if I can accept that, and then I can work on it. So if I want to make my bum smaller, I have mm. to go to the gym. Yeah. And if I want to get my brain to allow me to do the things I want to do and be happy in my life, I have to work on my brain. Uh, th this is kind of the the, the next uh, question I was going to ask you because uh, that's very nicely sums up this. You know, this is the hand of cards that you've been dealt genetically, uh, and obviously the 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 rate at which understanding of the brain, which is by far the most complex organism in the known universe, uh, the, the rate at which it's accelerating is extraordinary. In fact, New Scientist magazine recently put out a supplement all about the brain. And there was a fascinating article, which I think I might have mentioned in one of my previous shows, about consciousness in the recent episode, uh, edition of uh, New Scientist magazine, where uh, it, what's really important is us understanding still here we are in the year 2021 how little we know and understand about what goes on inside our heads and hence the title of my show inside your head it's because it's it's inside our head is as big a mystery as what's out there in the in the universe you know professor brian cox looks at stars and quasars and black holes inside our head is this equally if not more extraordinary place where stuff like this can happen okay so you ex you've obviously had to accept that this is the hand of cards you've been dealt with and there's no point just kicking and screaming and having a hissy fit about something you can do nothing about i mean this is lesson one of stoicism right <laughs> uh, a lesson i learned last year when i when i was told i had prostate cancer is like there's nothing you can do about it you've just got to lie there literally and take your medicine uh which you know it takes a major change of mindset so here you are you presented with this hand of cards what so where do you begin with this i mean in terms of accepting it and then dealing with it processing it do you just have to say well okay that that is what it is all i can do therefore is address effectively what is symptomatic of that in terms of your other mental health issues that in fact there's you can't uh, there's not some form of hypnosis or something that you could use to kind of undo what you've been given genetically so in fact all you can do essentially psycho you know in terms of psychiatry psychology medication stuff is treat the symptoms is that the situation for you well clearly i'm an exceedingly level-headed intelligent and put together person and have always been like this but no i think firstly you accept that you're always a work in progress as a human yeah. being yeah? yeah if you think you're complete as a human being then i'm very worried about that because i'm learning and developing and changing every day mm. To a point, though, you, you do have to accept it. If I've been born with a leg missing, I've been born with a leg missing. No matter what I do, I'm not going to grow another one. But I sure as hell can get a prosthetic limb. I'm in very lucky. I'm in a country yeah. where I can get that on the National Health Service. Yeah. And if I was in a country where I couldn't, I might make something for myself or I would learn to get about. So, yeah, mm. you, you have to accept it. Um it doesn't mean you then wallow in it, in my opinion. However, mm. at the same time, it's okay that sometimes we have those days where all we want to do is wrap up and build a pillow fort and eat ice cream. 
yourself. <laughs> yeah. They're okay. As long as that yeah. doesn't become your life, we're allowed to have bad days. Yeah. But you need to sort of decide how you're going to handle that. And I think that's helped me and my husband, no end, has helped me with this in in accepting medication, for example. Right. So when I was first diagnosed with postnatal depression, my doctor very quickly said, you need to go on uh, antidepressants, pop me on them. They did it. They did an OK job, came off them, went back on some different ones. Much better, much happier. And I love my happy pills. I have no issue telling people I'm on um, antidepressants, uh, anti-anxiety, antidepressant medication. It works mm. for me. Um, because if I told you I was di- diabetic and taking insulin, you wouldn't question me. Yeah. So why should I feel bad about the fact that my brain chemicals aren't quite right? Yeah. Um, so I'm happy to, to tell people about that. Um, mm. it, it's not, it's, it is an excuse. If you feel like you need it as an excuse, great. But it does enable me to forgive myself when mm. my brain goes off on a tangent or does something Mm. I'm not expecting it to do or makes me feel like I'm not worthy or all those things Mm. because I didn't I didn't ask for it yeah and then I can work on it and I I have been very lucky I've I've had a a psychiatrist who found me a great psychologist to work with who really took me back and, and worked through all the nurture aspects of my life yeah. that have led me to to create you know synaptic pathways in my brain that were not doing me any good so yeah. she had me work on breaking those down and reforming them and that's difficult to do don't let yeah. anybody tell you that going through that process is easy because it absolutely isn't yeah. so she's helped me with the nurture aspects of where things have perhaps gone wonky in my brain because of my thinking and then the drugs help me with the fact that it doesn't produce the right drug stuff for me it i don't get the right levels of chemicals in my brain it just doesn't happen so that is that's combined and that is actually a great starting place because instead of sitting there thinking it's me it's all my own fault i should be able to snap out of it what's wrong with me pull your socks up all words by the way i have heard in the last month by colleagues at work who are really going through it yeah. And I'm having to sit there and go, you're not being very kind to yourself here. <laughs> so yeah. it allows you to go, do you know what? It, it isn't because I'm not pulling my socks up. It isn't mm. because I've got to pull myself together. It isn't because I'm wallowing in it. Mm. But you have to act. Yeah. You do have to do something. Yeah. Nobody's going to wave a magic wand, unfortunately, and yeah. fix everything for you. But at yeah. least you know you're not the problem <laughs> yeah it, you've said something really interesting there because actually in episode one of the show when i interviewed dr lawrence baldwin and we were talking about uh various kinds of therapy and he said that you know for some people actually the starting point does need to be the medication because some people and unless they've got the medication that stabilizes them sufficiently, they may not be ready or able to do the talk therapy stuff. You know, I think, uh, you know, obviously I, cause I, I get talk therapy. I'm not on medication myself though. It was offered to me months ago, but I think it, the, the difference was it was offered to me without proper consultation. It was almost offered as a first resort mm. without properly, you know, having a proper examination but that's a problem between me and my then gp but i think you're you're right and i think uh this is a sign isn't it that there's still this kind of stigma attached to 
uh, as you say, people getting medication for what's going on inside their head as opposed to, you know, it, let's face it, people would even accept if you had a headache, you'd take paracetamol or ibuprofen, right? Without question. Well, let's say what I've got is a kind of a headache, but worse, right? Because it affects my behavior as well. But there's a tablet for it. So I'm going to take that tablet. Why shouldn't you take that tablet? Absolutely. And it's strange that even now, here we are in 2021, that people would still kind of uh, attach that kind of stigma to it. Very strange. The other thing is that you've mentioned there, which is this uh, almost default position that we as human beings have, and it is such a common experience, I've realized after going through it myself, that when we realize that there's something uh not quite right with our behaviors, with our responses to stuff, with our, our emotional response, you know. Um, our default position tends to be to blame ourselves. That, oh, there's something wrong with me. Oh, I'm a bad person. And what I realized um, going back a while now is that I'd, I'd been doing this to myself for nearly 50 years. I was in a state of advanced self-loathing is how I would put it which took me to the brink of suicide. And uh, learning self-compassion, learning to love myself, uh, was, a, well, it was a shock to me. What, I'm, I'm allowed to do that? I'd, I'd kind of be brought up thinking that I had to be my own worst critic. In fact, more than that, I had to anticipate other people's criticism and jump in there first to beat myself up so that when, if anyone else did try to criticize me, I go, oh, you don't need to criticize me. I've already done it myself. <laughs> I've done it far yeah. worse, far, far worse than you would ever dare criticize me, which is why actually in the first part of this show, I'm just going to mention that in the introduction of this show, I've, I've done a little piece on a wonderful book called self-compassion by an amazing woman called Kristin neff professor Kristin neff which i don't think is putting too fine a point on it to say that it pretty much saved my life at the time it made me realize oh yeah i do that mm. <laughs> i i beat myself up terribly now this is obviously something that as you're saying you've experienced and is a and in your role, which we can talk a bit about later, you you know, where you, you also reach out and help others. This is something that you experience all the time where people beat themselves up about their own problems that aren't their fault, right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Tell us about your experience. Yeah. So from a personal experience, I think, um, similar to, to you, I, I don't know whether I was brought up so much that way because my mom always told me you know you're the best you can do anything you want but mm. in myself I never felt that um I think maybe being brought up in the UK with our self-deprecating humor yeah. if you are the kind of person who then has a propensity to um struggle with with yourself you you say it and you laugh but underneath that is yeah. pain I still am very self-deprecating. Anyone who works with me will say that, but they, they see a difference now that I am telling jokes and it's okay. And actually I use it as a, it's how I lead people as well. You know, I'm not perfect. So if I tell you to do something and you don't think it's right, of course you can challenge me because I'm an idiot. I might not be right. I don't know everything. So I'm fine with that. But I think another part of it, it weirdly is this odd 
um, fear of narcissism we have. Mm. So I'm fearful of being narcissistic. I'm fearful of only thinking about myself and worrying about myself. Yet, when this thing happens, I'm the only one that's possibly responsible for it. Yeah. And it's this weird cycle we have of, of um, thinking we're the centre of the universe, but then worrying because we know we're not the centre of the universe. And it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's yeah. tormenting ourselves. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I definitely have done, you know, been where you were and thought about, um, you know, am I worthy to be here? Mm. You know, I've, I've looked at the money my husband and child would get if I wasn't here anymore because I get good mm. death in service benefits where I work mm. and there's a pension mm. pot and you know the insurers would pay off the house and you know it's gone mm. that logical with me mm. But, mm. but then that part of my brain that is overly empathetic because one of my issues is over empathy comes in and that's actually what pulls me back from the edge so my over empathy has saved my life on a number of occasions but mm. it's that that strange self-blame never talking to yourself the way you would talk to a friend or even a stranger in the street so if you saw a stranger in the street crying upset about to do something awful Mm. you wouldn't go over to them and go well you probably brought it on yourself (laughs) what stupid decisions did you make why did you do that what you would go over and you would say is you're more valuable than you realize there's nothing that's happened that we can't get fixed for you. Mm. You are loved and needed, even if you don't realise it. Mm. You would say all those things, and yet you don't say them to yourself. So one of the bits of advice that is always with me when I speak to people who are in a depressive crisis mm. is be nice to yourself. Talk mm. to yourself as if you are a stranger in the street that has seen you in this state what would you say Mm. to yourself take Mm. yourself out of your skin give Mm. yourself a break and it's such a simple thing but when you're in that depressive state having someone who gives you permission to do that can sometimes be all you need someone who says to you it's actually okay that you feel like shit that's okay you don't have to put a brave face on it actually you can tell people and also give yourself a break and try talking to yourself, even out loud if you have to. Yeah. Tell yourself, you're okay. It's okay. You don't deserve to feel like this. Mm. It's a little bit like the um, the more cliched standing in front of a mirror and loving yourself. And, you yeah. know, I love you and all that. So people can't do that. British people can't do that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Especially of our generation. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, it's not happening. But I think just sitting there maybe on a sofa even and just sort of saying to yourself either out loud or in your head it's okay you're okay you're worth it yeah you'll you it will get better but it's okay that you feel like this yeah um let's make ourselves a cup of tea the things that you would do it it, it just can lift people and um and that's one thing i would say to people if you're not sure what to say to somebody who's in a in a pickle in a bit of a state mm. just say nice things to them generally yeah. nice things yeah. you know and that it can be enough to make them go oh do you know what someone does care yeah and yeah. and do it for yourself tell yeah. yourself that you're 
you're okay. And then I take that a step further. Now I'm quite well. Sometimes I sit down and this is, it's really naff, but I'm going to tell you what I do. Sometimes I sit down and I turn on my TV and my TV is made by LG. Oh, right. LG obviously stands for life's good. And every so often I turn the TV on and the logo comes up and it goes, life's good. And I go, do you know what it is? And I make myself sit there and look around my house and go, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food in the cupboard. I'm very lucky I've got family around me. I've got friends. And it's a bit of a count your blessings moment. Yeah, it, it's gratitude. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and that is another thing that now I'm better helps keep me well. Because I remind myself that I'm doing better than a lot of people in the world and that I'm lucky, but not, oh my God, you should count yourself lucky. Just, mm. oh, look how lucky you are. And therefore, yeah. perhaps let some things go. In amongst that, you said a couple of really important things. The first thing, even though you didn't mention it specifically, uh, the voice inside our head talking to ourselves and one of the key shifts that uh, in my case I realized that I had made but I only realized it in retrospect when I read a brilliant book that I've read recently called Chatter which is all about the voice inside our heads and how you know we can turn it from this kind of monster that takes us over into something that's actually quite benign one of the things that he talked about is, I think they call it shifting. And it's a very subtle thing, and you did it right there, which is we shift from talking to ourselves in the first person. Oh, I'm so miserable. Oh, I feel so bad. I feel so terrible. This is so awful. I can't go on. To using the second person voice. Like you're talking to a dear friend, as you mentioned there. Imagine you came across your friend in this situation or someone on the street in this situation. How would you talk to them? Exactly as you described, Samantha, so brilliantly. You wouldn't say to them, oh, go on and jump, right? <laughs> you you wouldn't say, yeah, you are a useless piece of poo, actually. You would say, oh, come on, you know, pull yourself. To, you know, you, you're, you're worth far more than that. You shouldn't beat yourself up in that way. Think of all the good things that you do. Think of all the people who love you. Think of, you know, all the, the, the ways that you contribute to the world. You are needed. You are loved. You are wanted, you know. And that shift from first person to second person. And in the book, they even recommend that you see if you can go to third person, where it's almost like you're a fly on the wall observing this thing going on. How would you describe what that person there is doing? You know, so you distance yourself from the emotional drama completely. You know, um, it's a fascinating thing, and and just that shift from first to second person, I realised that I'd made, which is a sign that, oh, I'm on the road to recovery then. I'm not in the bottom of that black hole on my own anymore. I have myself as my own dearest friend caring for me, right? So that's kind of uh, one thing. And the other thing is, as you've mentioned there, is reasons to be grateful. And that very subtle thing where, you know, it's not... it's. I always think back to my mum, you know, when she was forcing me to eat all everything that was on my plate. Think of the starving kids in Africa. You're so much, <laughs> right? You're so much better off than them, mm -hmm. right? Which is like, 
it's not really helpful, actually, you know. And in that situation, exactly as you described, it it is, and a lot of you get a lot of meditation stuff, and I'm going to be doing stuff about gratitude for sure, which is just like you can be really grateful for the simple things like, hey, I woke up this morning, right? And when you've had cancer, there are days when you think, I might not wake up tomorrow, right? Uh, and that, yes, I am like I have a roof over my head I'm sitting here in my own little home built studio I've got the food I want I've got a fabulous cup of coffee over here I've got some lovely friends I've got stuff you know I I I have all my eyes and limbs and you know I'm able to do stuff and this is all stuff that is so easy to take for granted and when you're feeling low, you completely overlook this stuff and you only see the, the black stuff. You don't see the white, you only see the black stuff. So what you're saying, I love that trick, you know, you're sitting in front of your telly and its logo is LG, life's good. And you take that as your starting point, Samantha. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Now, you, I think we ought to mention it because you're, you're clearly very very knowledgeable about a lot of this stuff, but you are actually what's called a mental health champion aren't you can you explain to people what that actually is um, you're not wearing a medal at the moment or anything like that <laughs> <laughs> but tell us what that's all about because it sounds to me as if you, this is a way in which you've taken your own experience and put it to good use as it were yeah, so I'm, I'm very lucky to work for quite a progressive organisation, which I, the only reason I can't name on here is I haven't been through our PR department to find out if I'm allowed to say who I work for. And I'm <laughs> sure I won't say anything on here that will embarrass them. But, that, um, you know, got to follow the rules and all that. But yeah. I work for, for, a, for a bank, a large bank, and, um, and they're very progressive. And um, I've been with them now since 2013. Right. And during that period, I've had two extended periods of, ill health mental ill health yeah and neither time one was a couple of years ago and one was quite early on in my career with them and neither time was i made to feel that that was not an acceptable reason mm. i was own people didn't necessarily understand they didn't yeah. necessarily say the right words yeah but they were like well, you're not very well and it's mm. that simple and from mm. that starting point within this organization um they have been on an incredible journey of of realizing that um if you want to be really uh cynical about it <laughs> from a business yeah. perspective looking after your colleagues mental health might be a good idea yeah. um but they've done it in such a way that the conversation about mental health in the organization i work for is every day right um and it's the same as conversations they have in my organization about race and disability yeah. and gender and um anything you can think of uh yeah. lbgt plus nothing is off table doesn't yeah. matter if you say not quite the right word because it will be the intent that is listened to and if you are going off on a tangent we'll call you out on it yeah but from the mental health perspective um very early on in the organization when I realized what they were like, I started to get involved with the health and well-being activity there. And I, and I was, by the nature of who I am, people tend to come and tell me their woes, and that's fine. Right. Um, and I would spend time with them. And there were people who were very good at that thing, and then they would kind of point people in my direction. And that's also fine, because just yeah. another thing, 
it's okay if you're not very good at helping other people with that stuff. An assumption should never be made that everybody is good at this. Not everybody is good at everything, but find somebody around you, either in your organization or in your family, who is good at it. And then you will be able to share their experience. Um, so the, 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 the company started um, something around mental health and got together with a group of people and we started mm-hmm. talking. And inevitably, a lot of the people that were involved were people who had diagnoses themselves of various yeah. um, uh, mental health conditions. And, um, and then we started talking about it more and more. And then that grew and it mm-hmm. became a whole network of people across the whole organization. There are, there are over 70,000 permanent employees in this organization. Right. Uh, and there are all sorts of things we do to support. And so we have a list of mental health champions that everyone can access. Mm -hmm. Our phone numbers are available to anybody. The bottom of my email signature says, I'm a mental health champion. I'm here for anyone who needs me. And basically, Uh we were given training by the organization on how to handle situations, the right Mm -hmm. things to say, where to point people to, what Mm -hmm. you don't have to take on board, what you can Mm -hmm. take on board, how to protect yourself, all that good stuff. And then further to that, a few years ago, they brought in Mental Health First Aid. It's a very particular training course, which we no longer do, unfortunately, but I can understand why, um, yeah. and especially with the pandemic having been the way it is. So yeah, Mental sure. Health First Aid is it's exactly like it says on the tin. It is the equivalent to normal first aid, if we want to call it that, where um, if someone is in crisis... Yeah, you call a mental health first aider. So we were trained to deal with people going through psychotic breaks, uh, deep depression, depressive um, or deep anxiety situations. What to say, what not to say, how to get help. You know, if they're sat under the table and they're frightened, get under the table with them. You know, don't engage with their hallucinations. All these things you you don't know what to do unless you get given the training. And that was just a whole extra layer of understanding for Mm. a few of us who went through that to know that now out in the street if I came across somebody I would know how to handle it and so I do a lot of work with people across the team I work in and the wider team where the line manager will will call me up and say oh I'm worried about so and so and I don't know quite the right thing to say so sometimes I'm coaching a line manager or a colleague because they want to help they just want me to help them help yeah. Some who are like, you know, it's not my cup of tea, Samantha. Mm. Do you mind? Absolutely mm. not. Reach out to the person, deal with it myself. Mm. Um, sometimes I'm spotting things and I'm going to line managers saying, keep an eye on this person, or I'm spotting things and going out to other colleagues who I know I can trust to kind of go, you're with them more than me. Give do me a favor, keep an mm. eye, let me know what you think. Mm. And the ongoing training and support for that is paid for by the organization. And they just, they just are massively supportive and it is a recognized thing. You know, mm. hey, that person delivered that project really well. Hey, that person made us X amount of money. And hey, mm. that person has helped loads of colleagues. So yeah. it's on equivalent. It has a value. And that yeah. is a rarity, I think. Yeah, um, but a great thing to be involved in and, and, and has enabled me to help so many people um, and I'm known, like everyone in my wider team knows, <laughs> yeah. if you've got a bit of a wonky thing going on in your own brain or in somebody in your family, it doesn't have to be a member of the organization even, Right. Samantha's the person to go and talk to. 
Now, this is really interesting. First of all, of course, it makes me think now there's people listening out there who are members of large-ish organizations. Um, if they don't already have a system like this in place, go and knock on someone's door. It sounds to me like such an incredibly valuable thing, as you've described, that uh, this it ought to be as equally valued. You know, if people train up first aiders and, uh, you know, uh, fire assistants and that kind of thing, you know, evacuation people, pandemic people. Man, mental health first aiders. What a brilliant, brilliant idea. So uh, more big companies need to have this kind of thing in place. Secondly, however, the, the, the interesting point is this. At what point, how do you make a judgment call when you might be approached by someone and you think, now, actually, this is the kind of thing where they really ought to be getting proper therapy from someone on a regular basis. How do you make that judgment call, Samantha? Because there, there must have been occasions where you've had conversations with people where that's occurred to you, where this isn't just a kind of a, a here and now crisis that can be solved in the workplace or related to it kind of thing. This is... This is a big life problem, potentially, that they need help for. How do you make that judgment call? So I think the first thing that we all have to remember when we're doing anything like this for anybody is unless you are a psychiatrist or a psychologist, none of us are qualified to make to, to, to do anything but offer the, the, the basic help that we can of being a human being. And that's yeah. what I go into any one of these interactions with. I don't go in thinking I'm going to solve their problem. I go in thinking... Who can I point them to who can help yeah. solve the problem? And that's always yeah. my first port of call. Obviously, I'm there to deal with the, the situation at the time. And if someone's in crisis, my first thing to do is keep them safe. Mm. First and foremost, keep them safe. Then mm. it's how do I get them the help they need? And that's really all a first aid champion or for, uh, sorry, mental health or first aid or a mental health champion is there to do is to point mm. them to the people with the experience. Yeah. Um, because I there's lots of pop psychology out there as we know, um, yeah. and there's lots of opinions that are not facts, as we know, and I haven't studied, I haven't got a medical degree, I haven't got a psychology degree, I'm interested in the subject, mm. but I know mm. where my limitations are, so mm. always I'm thinking about what is it that I can offer them, and again, I'm very lucky in my organisation because we have a, an employee assistance programme, which most large organisations have, who have a phone number that you can ring where you can be anonymous if you want but they do like to take your contact details because again if you go into crisis they want to get your help mm. but they have a whole batch of people who are counsellors that can get you right. nhs you're waiting 18 months for counselling and so employee yes. assistant program you can get a six-week telephone counselling course in the, in the space of a couple of weeks yeah. um so there's that there's the gp you know have you spoken to your gp yeah. uh, can you get into your gp there's a whole yeah problem with yeah. that <laughs> yeah um we're very lucky as well because i work for a bank but if you've ever worked for ever worked for a bank or are related to someone who works for a bank or you work for a bank the bank workers charity exists oh right and there is a phone number for you to ring and they can help with mental health but also financial difficulties and all sorts of things so that's an right. interesting thing for people to do and it's literally called the bank workers charity and all wow. the banks in the uk pay money into it for people to use there are organizations like your bank 
that you may not be aware have mental health phone lines set up for customers. Wow. Um, so where I work, if you ring up and you're having a, a mental health crisis and the person on, or, or just a bad time and the person on the phone realizes that when you say it, they have numbers they can give you. They have details oh. they can give you. It doesn't not it's not necessarily the place you'd think to go. No, I certainly but, wouldn't have thought of that for sure. But if you think about, especially during the pandemic, the oh. the kind of t- conversations our frontline colleagues have been having with customers who don't know if they're going to be able to pay their bills mm-hmm. we needed more than just to be able to help them with that so you'd be surprised what you can get and and then sometimes if someone is in crisis you're gonna to have to call for an ambulance you're gonna to have to call for, mm-hmm. for the police potentially mm-hmm. it's about being a human being and just looking at that person and thinking what they can do but i have literally been with people and picked up the phone with them to call numbers and then initiated the conversation for them and then handed the phone to them because they just needed someone to do that first step for them but i am never ever there to fix their problem because i absolutely am not qualified to do that and to be honest with you i suppose most psychologists and sociologists would um psychiatrists would say this they're not there to fix their problem actually they're there to give them the tools to enable them to fix yeah. their problem so yeah. uh that's the mindset to go in with you're not yeah. there to fix it you're not responsible yeah. for yeah. fixing it you're there to point out where these people can go to get help but also yeah. to just be a sympathetic ear whilst they're going through it yeah um Coming towards the end of our time, but th- this is really uh, a race an important thing because you've you're someone who suffered from uh, well, we could have an entire conversation about postnatal depression because I think that's a, a highly misunderstood area of depression, postpartum depression. Uh, but you've suffered from a number of issues that you've described uh, very courageously during the program, including anxiety and depression and so on and so forth, and that you've actually had contact with both psychologists and psychiatrists, as well as medication. What, in your experience, have you found to be the most helpful approaches out because you've obviously you've you've experienced quite a spectrum of of stuff over the years so what in your experience has been the most helpful stuff that you've experienced perhaps the most helpful advice that you've received in your kind of lifetime of dealing with your own issues so i'll probably start with the least helpful thing people say and then move on to the most helpful The least helpful thing that you can say to someone who is suffering with a severe depressive period is to go out and do some exercise. Mm. Because if you do, in my opinion, they're well within their rights to punch you on the nose. (laughs) Because (laughs) it's not that you're wrong. Exercise does help. But if you've ever been in a severe depressive episode you are lucky to get your ass out of bed. Yeah. And it, each little step should be praised. Yeah. Uh, it's not helpful. That's a yeah. long-term uh, management strategy. It is not yeah. a short-term go out for a job and you'll feel better. <laughs> Just yeah, yeah, yeah. don't do it. That yeah. would be my first bit of advice to anyone who's wondering what to say. Just don't tell them to go out and exercise. I get it all the time. And I heard it said to people and I see the reaction. Yeah. For me, the best 
the best thing I had was I uh, had a really good GP when I had the postnatal depression who, from postnatal depression, told me that babies are a nightmare and that, um, that of course, you're beating yourself up, but they're okay. You're the one that needs to be looked after. So if you are suffering from postnatal depression, I think that's one of the most important things to remember. The baby is not going to remember any of the heck that's going on at the moment, but you sure as hell are. So as long as the baby is fed and watered and clean, deal with yourself. That's fine. But when it comes to the general, um, uh, general treatment strategies and what's happened to me, the the best thing really was, um, I'm very fortunate. I work for an organization that also provides private healthcare, but you can pay for it as well. But I managed to get to a psychiatrist, which is almost impossible through the NHS. I know that. I do know that. But I've done the NHS CBT and they've just given you stuff to do and they don't really get to the crux of it. When I went to the psychiatrist and she told me, you're not very well. Mm -hmm. Not, that's the word she used. You're not Mm -hmm. very well. You're poorly. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm poorly. So that was great. Uh, I'm actually poorly. So I recognize it. I'm not putting it on. I'm poorly. Yeah. It's been acknowledged. Yeah. Acknowledged. Yeah. And then go into my wonderful psychologist who absolutely was so patient, didn't have any strategy set for me before I got there, was able to draw on lots of different things based on my ability to self manage, what my real problems were, Mm. you know. And then working through that with me, not just giving me tools and sending me on my way and expecting me to do stuff, working through that with me and accepting me for who I was. Mm. um, That really was what broke the back of this, coupled Mm. with the medication I'm on, which the other thing the psychiatrist said to me, which again lifted a massive weight off my shoulders was, you will be on these for life. Do not worry about it. No messing, no, we'll review it, because Mm. I've been suffering since I was a child. She was like, Mm. you're in your, I think I was in my late 30s then, she said, this isn't going to go away. You're Mm. poorly, you need these, you'll be on them for life, we'll get the right dosage for you, and then you just take them and you forget about it. And that was just like, well, it's okay for me to be on these for life? It's okay for me to be poorly? And this person's going to listen to me and help me. And I've been very lucky. But then it took me until my late 30s to get there. This wasn't a quick journey. It was a lot of false starts and a lot of pain along the way. Mm. If you can get the right people and the right group of people around you, and if you can get over the stigma of worrying about taking the tablets or going yeah. to see a counsellor. I think yeah. everybody should get counselling, actually. I don't <laughs> yeah. think you should be diagnosed with anything to need counselling. I think there isn't a single person in the world that isn't going through something at some time and yeah. could do with talking it through. And that's yeah. another thing. Um, I'm talking about all my experiences, and yes, there may be a lot, but everybody's had something. Everybody yeah. has. But I yeah. think that combination of things for me was what was my solution. Yeah. And now I carefully monitor and manage myself. But knowing I've got the psychologist's phone number in my pocket, I don't see her anymore. But I know where she is. Yeah. That is yeah. my that is my backup. Yeah. And that's what's worked for me. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would agree. I think it's so important knowing that you've got 
allies is it's hard to describe the relationship that you have with your therapist of one kind or another and it's something that i've discussed in a previous show that uh, with with susie christensen actually about that relationship between the client and the therapist which is really hard to describe but it's a unique thing it's not like anything else and as i know from my own bitter experience it's best not to think that your friends can provide mm-hmm. what you need because your friends care about you too much it sounds like a crazy thing to say and as happened to me the uh, you know a friend who loves you can end up getting so distressed by what they're hearing that you've been through that they get you know distressed and they are unable to cope anymore you know but that's a story for another time samantha thank you so much for coming on the show this has been absolutely brilliant we could have talked for at least another hour (laughs) and i know that because we've chatted in a different context uh, previously you're capable of talking for another hour as am i (laughs) (laughs) so we may we may have to get you back on the show but i think what you've revealed today has just been absolutely amazing thank you so much for your openness and honesty thank you so much i mean goodness me there should be the listeners of this show should be going banging on big corporation doors and saying we want mental health first aiders because this just sounds like an amazing thing and just before we go and i mentioned the book there's a book by a chap called guy winch called emotional first aid which actually is kind of related to what you were talking about and i will talk about that at more length in a different show but anyway thank you so much samantha it's been a joy having you on and uh, i'm sure the listeners are going to find what you've had to say absolutely fascinating and extremely helpful thank you thanks Don't forget to stay tuned for Relaxation on the Beach with Henry. Thanks for listening. Until next time, be well. everyone this is henry and welcome to episode three of relaxation on the beach and today in keeping with the introduction to this episode we're going to do a short meditation based on self-compassion because i think that it's fair to say that most of us are probably going through some kind of difficulty or difficult situation of one kind or another. So I thought today that's what we'd focus on is giving ourselves some compassion. So I'd like you to adopt whatever particular position you've decided on, standing, sitting or lying down with your eyes closed or half open if that's what you prefer and we're just going to start by settling into a comfortable position and let's start with a nice big deep breath in okay so in two three four and out two, three, four, and another one, in, 
two, three, four, and out. Two, three, four. So now, with you feeling completely relaxed, I invite you to think of a situation in your life right now that's difficult. Maybe you're feeling a bit stressed, or you're worried about something happening, or perhaps there's tension in one of your important relationships in your life. And obviously our practice here is relatively short, so choose something that you can easily focus on, that you feel like you could do with some soothing healing balm for yourself. So bring this challenging situation to mind. Think about the situation or think about the person with whom you'd like to share this healing. And think about what what's actually happened or what are you worried about that you think might happen and hold that in your mind and consider these simple things first acknowledge that this is a difficult situation In your own mind, find language that works for you to label what's happening right now. Perhaps it's a really tough situation. Maybe you even feel a little afraid about it. Just bring mindful awareness to what's actually happening right now. And now, Acknowledge that difficulty is part of life. Difficulty is something that you've experienced before and everyone around you has experienced before as well. It's part of our common humanity. It's a shared experience. So this difficulty that you're facing is its part of our experience. And like everything else, this too will pass. The pain and difficulty that you're feeling right now will come to an end. Nothing lasts forever. So now I'd like you to repeat this phrase to yourself, either quietly in your own mind or if you prefer, you can say it out loud softly. May I be kind to myself 
in this moment. And that's that again. May I be kind to myself in this moment. So we're acknowledging that it doesn't matter how hard the situation is, how difficult it is. You don't have to blame yourself. You can be kind to yourself. And you can go ahead and use any words or language you like that supports this sense of kindness and compassion towards yourself. Imagine, for example, what you might say to a friend who is going through something similar. What might you say? You might say, I'm here for you. It's going to be okay. You're loved. And you might like to send kind wishes to this person. But now you're going to send kind wishes to yourself. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be calm. May you be at peace. And let's say that again together. May you be well. May you be happy. May you be calm. May you be at peace. I'm here for you. It's going to be okay. You are loved. And if you like, you could Rest your hand on your heart, offering kindness to yourself. Take a moment to take in and absorb that kindness. Feel that compassion sinking into you. Feel that you are not alone. Feel that you are your own best friend, giving yourself love and compassion 
and understanding and support. Let's do some more breathing. Take a deep breath in. Two, three, four, and out. Two, three, four, and in. Two, three, four, and out. Two, three, four, and in. Two, three, four, and out. Two, three, four. Recognizing the compassion that you've given yourself. Recognize that compassion and recognize how you feel now. Recognize how you're not alone. Recognize how you can have love for yourself and that you can call on that love whenever you need it. And so, as we come to the end of our practice today, let's finish with big deep breath in, which will let out much more slowly. So, Breathe in, two, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So let your breathing return to normal. Allow yourself to have a bit of a stretch. And slowly open your eyes and return to your life. I hope that you've enjoyed today's session focusing on self-compassion. Make use of the session as often as you like. Use self-compassion to help yourself through your difficult times. Thanks for being with me today. I'll see you next time. Until then, be well. This podcast was produced by Henry Hyde. Copyright Henry Hyde, 2021.